Two weeks ago, um, we talked about Genesis chapter 2 and about that as highlighting the deficiencies in the world before God finished on day 6 of creation. There was no shrubs. There were no plants. There was no rain. There was no man to work the ground. And there was one other thing missing, a helper suitable for Adam. God met those deficiencies in the garden, in the streams, or the mist, or rivers, and in a man. Today, we're going to look at how God supplied the need, the deficiency in man, for a helper, for Adam. And we're going to stay real close to the biblical text today. And then next week, we want to look a little bit deeper into the implications of all of that for male and female relationships and all of that. We're going to start today with Genesis chapter 2. And uh, starting at verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Father God, Your word is so amazing, has so much in it for us that we can never devour it. We, we, we can't begin, if we spent a whole lifetime in your word, Father, we would just barely touch the edges of it. So, Father, just take this, these few minutes and give us a glimpse into your word again this morning. Let it speak to us, let it minister to us, let it um, challenge us, let it correct us. Let it shape and mold us into the people of God that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So on the morning of the sixth day of creation... God brought all of these animals that had just been created, and he brought them to Adam. And he brought them to him for him to name him, name them. Now, people today will look for any reason under the sun to doubt God's word, and they will argue that Adam could not have named all the animals in a day, in such a short time, and that it would have taken forever to round up all of those animals for Adam to name, and all of that. But I remember that I serve a God um, 
who was able to bring animals two by two all at the same time to Noah's Ark, and they went in. Now, if any of you have ever tried to get cows to load in a trailer, I bet you didn't stand back and say, well, you two now and you two now. God did that all by himself and brought all these different species in and they just walked in. <laughs> didn't take whips or anything else or hot, hot pokes or anything else. God just did that. And so that's the kind of God we serve. Besides that, the animals hadn't strayed. They had just been created. So they weren't all over the place. They were right there when Adam created them. But the naming of the animals does several things. First, it illustrates Adam's intellectual capacity and ability to study the characteristics of all of these different animals and to give a name that is appropriate to them. But it also does this. It it illustrates God's interest in what we do. I love the wording here. God brought the animals to Adam to see what he would name them. I just think that's so interesting that God, the creator of the the universe, brought animals and said, I want want to just see what Adam's going to name these animals. I think God every day gets up and says, I want to see what Wren is going to do today. (laughs) He is interested in what you're going to do, Wren. (laughs) God is interested in what you are doing. And he's interested in Adam naming the animals. It also illustrates God's delegated authority that he has given to man. To Adam. To all of us. It says whatever Adam named those animals, those were their names. God never sat back. He didn't delegate authority and then say, well, Adam, you didn't do a very good job there naming that animal. God delegated that authority, gave it to him, and then those were the names that were assigned to those animals. And that's an amazing thing about God that he would choose to delegate authority to us and trust us with it. There are You know, there are certain temperament types that have a hard time delegating authority and trusting other people to do it as well as they could do it. But if anyone has the right to be like that, it would be who? It would be God. And yet, God, the perfect creator of the universe, trusts responsibility to you and to me to do things even though none of us are going to do them quite like God would do them. And it's an incredible thing here in in Genesis that God delegates this responsibility, and that is the names that were given to these animals. God never corrected, never said, that's a stupid name. How'd you come up with that one? Those were the animals. 
names that were given to them. No second guessing on God's part. It illustrates also Adam's responsibility in taking up the work that God had given to him. God wanted him to name them, and Adam stepped up to the plate and went ahead and named those animals. He didn't sit back and say, well, I don't think I'm qualified to do this. I don't know what reason you give God for not doing what he wants you to do. But Adam didn't do that. Adam just took the responsibility and says, okay, I'll do it. And he did it. There was immediate response of obedience there and taking responsibility for what God wanted him to do. And then lastly, the naming of the animals illustrates the deficiency in Adam, because as he names and sees all of the animal kingdom, Adam really comes to recognize what God already had recognized, that there wasn't a helper that was suitable for him. And so we come to verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then verse 20 says, But for Adam no suitable helper was found. Those two verses tell us, first of all, that Adam has two big problems. Number one, he is alone. And God designed us to be in relationship not only with him, but also with other people. And I want to say to us today that loneliness is one of the biggest problems there is in the world today. It is one of the biggest problems faced by people. And it is one of the primary opportunities for ministry by any Christian And by any church. It is critical that you understand how important your role in satisfying that need is in the lives of people that come to this church. There are lonely people sitting in the pews and you don't know what they've been through. You don't know when the last time they got to share their their story today with someone else was. And you get to be the presence in their life when they come to church. You, when you go out and you meet other people, um, some look for the people that are just lonely. They, they don't have a companion or, or maybe they've just lost their spouse or, or all kinds of things have happened in their life and they feel isolated and, and alone. I want you to see here that God recognized this as a major problem for Adam. None of us like to be alone. Even introverts don't like to be alone. (laughs) And, And so you have an opportunity. One of the chief roles of ministry that you can do is is just making sure that you have your eyes open to see people who may be lonely who aren't going to announce that to the world right here in church or somewhere else. 
But secondly, God says that Adam has another problem, and that is that he doesn't have a suitable helper for him. And I want to highlight the fact that that God did not say that he didn't have a servant suitable for him, or a slave suitable helper, or suitable for him, or someone who was inferior to him to be there for him. No, the the Hebrew word there is ezer for helper. And, And ezer is a word that is used by Moses quite often and usually to refer to God. God is my ezer. He is my helper. And Moses uses that word several times. And you would never, never say about God that God is an inferior to us. God is always our superior. And, And so Moses uses that same word when he says that Adam needs a helper. In fact, Moses names one of his own sons, Ali Azer which means God, Al, Ezer, is my helper. God is my helper. So this helper is not someone who is inferior to him. Rather, indeed, it may be a superior in many ways. This helper is someone who is suitable to Adam. This is a helper that corresponds to the deficiencies in Adam. In other words, there are certain things that I just... Don't do well or catch. My wife quite often is strong in the areas where I'm weak. That also makes us quite different from each other. It also makes us incompatible, which is a big word today in our culture, and yet... If, if God has designed someone to come along to help us in our areas of weakness, that means that marriage is, in t- in, 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 marriage is intended by God to put two incompatible people together to meet each other's needs. God never intended marriage to be the marriage of two people who were identical. There are some times, yes, I would like Priscilla to be a little bit more like me. And there's a lot of days she wishes I was a lot more like her. (laughs) But that wasn't God's intention. And it wouldn't work very well. And so we are different. And God uses those differences, those incompatibilities to fulfill each other person. Those incompatibilities are God's design and part of the purpose of marriage. It causes growth. It causes maturity. It, it completes us and it keeps us in check with each other. Marriage is unity in diversity. This helper was also one who complements Adam socially, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally. And this helper is one who is not primarily um, someone who does something for Adam. The help doesn't come in what she does so much as in who she is. And that's a good reminder for us. 
a helper suitable. God doesn't give a list here in Genesis of the things she does. God tells us who she is. That's how she comes and that's how she helps. And so the Lord God causes this man to fall into a deep sleep. And first of all, it should be noted that Adam was asleep when God created Eve. (laughs) While she comes from Adam, Adam had nothing to do with the planning or the creating of Eve. If he had planned it, If he had had a role and participated in the the creation of Eve, I am quite, quite sure Adam would have messed it up. And so God puts him into a deep sleep. Not just, not just a light one. A deep sleep. And God gives Adam some good anesthesia and um, a good dose of it. And Adam does not get to contribute into Uh, the making of Eve, except for when he's asleep and doesn't know what he's doing. Then God does surgery on him and takes out the rib. And secondly, that's the second point I want to make. This, This creation of Eve cost Adam a rib. Everything else in creation... Everything else is created out of void emptiness. God takes nothing and he makes something. But not when he makes Eve. When it came to Adam, remember, God didn't just speak Adam into existence. He took some dirt and formed Adam out of dirt. But he doesn't even do that when he makes Eve. He steps it up a notch and he does surgery on Adam and takes a rib out of Adam. He doesn't make her from the dust of the earth. He makes her from Adam. The ribs protect the vital organ. And they are, that is symbolic meaning. That that is how Adam is to view Eve as a vital organ to be protected and to be cherished. And third, in the creation of Eve, there is the presentation that God doesn't simply make Adam and then make Eve, but Moses tells us that God specifically made a presentation. <laughs> Goes and makes a presentation, says, hey, Adam, look over here. And this speaks, I think, to the fact that men tend to be more visually stimulated. And so there is this visual presentation of Eve made to Adam. And Adam is delighted. The man says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So there is this enthusiastic response to the presentation of Eve. In fact, the the Revised Standard Version translates it, At last! (laughs) This is what I've been looking for. This is my missing part. This is it. 
And so there's this mixture of relief and ecstasy and delight that Adam experiences. And the man becomes honored in the fact that a woman was made for him. And the woman is honored in the fact that man is incomplete without her. Adam says she will be called woman. Now it's interesting, you can kind of see in English um, the, the similarity of the words, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. But in Hebrew, it does much the same thing. The Hebrew language, um, the, the word there for woman is isha, for she will be taken out of ish. And I told you a couple weeks ago, you know, women, you can kind of laugh at us because our Hebrew name is ish. Um, <laughs> And the Hebrew name for women is Isha, and there's that that connection. They sound similar. The root of the Ish in Arabic gives the idea of exercising power, while the root of the word Isha in Arabic gives the idea of softness. And then there is the, the union of the man and the woman, of Adam and Eve. And that is why Moses writes, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So I want to say a few things here before we move into, in the next couple of weeks, into Genesis chapter 3. Because Genesis chapter 3, so much of our theology today is based on Genesis chapter 3. And so much of our relational theology and so much of our marriage philosophy and theology is based on Genesis chapter 3 and quite frankly I believe that that is wrong headed I believe it should be based on Genesis chapter 2 if you look at what Jesus does every time he gets questioned by something Jesus always comes back when they talk to Jesus about marriage or they talk to Jesus about you know, something related to that or divorce or something else, Jesus never goes to Genesis chapter 3. He always goes to Genesis chapter 2 and he quotes Genesis chapter 1 or Genesis chapter 2 in solving questions about marriage. I want to say there's a great deal of poor theology out there today on marriage and about relationships because we are patterning our marriages and relationships on Genesis chapter 3 instead of Genesis chapter 2. Why on earth would we in the church pattern a good marriage and good relationships on the fall and on sin and on the influence of Satan? when we can pattern our marriages and our relationships on the Garden of Eden and on the way God intended them without any sin. 
We should be like Jesus. Our theology, what we think about marriage, the way we think about relationships should be based in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and not in Genesis chapter 3. If anything, Genesis chapter 3 should teach us what not to do in marriage and what not to do in relationships. We ought to go here in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 1 to learn what God intended for how he intended us to live. So what is that intention? What is that design? Well, first of all, man leaves his father and mother. He ceases to live under the, the, their headship and becomes the head of a new home. Just a couple of years ago, I, I, after pastoring in Johnson Corners for 22 years, I had a, a man, um, when I first moved there, I, did, I didn't do the marriage ceremony, but I did the, the marriage counseling for them. And um, I, I didn't know it, but, and I'd forgot to even said this to him in marriage counseling. It was very humbling when I, he reminded me of what I said. And I, I was so excited when finally he and his wife moved back to Johnson Corners and to that area and moved back home. And I said something to him about how much I valued him being part of the church and all of that after all these years uh, of being up in Minot. And he looked at me and he says, "Um, well, you know, Pastor, you're the reason we haven't been there all along. And I said, what? He said, yeah, when I came to you for marriage counseling, you said, you said that the Bible said that a man needs to spend some time away from mom and dad when he first gets marriage. married. <laughs> now, first of all, I didn't know that anyone ever listened to me. <laughs> but, but secondly, here, here's a young man who, who because of you know, one little comment I made in marriage counseling decided that even though he really desperately wanted to come home and live on the home place with his new bride, he decided that, no, they would go. And, and I think it worked out well for them in all of that. But they lived up in Minot for a, a number of years before they moved back home to the farm um, when his parents started needing a lot more attention and help. And uh, And... But he, and, and, then, and then he thanked me. He said, that was good time away, or I'd have been forever kind of under the headship of my parents. And he said, I, I took care of that. I'm head of my home and all of that. And so a man leaves his father and mother, and he ceases to live under the headship of, of his parents, and he becomes the head of a new home. The woman transitions from being under the headship of her parents, and she transitions to being under the headship of her husband. And, and one of the other things that happens here is there's, there's this temporary relationship of a parent and a child that gives way to a permanent relationship of a husband and wife. And that tells us 
that one of the most important things we can do in our culture and one of the most important things we can do in our homes and one of the most important things we can do as as Christians is prepare young people for success at the permanent relationship that is coming ahead. So often we prepare our children and we we try to protect and and keep that parent-child relationship alive permanently. That's not God's intention. God wants to use the home to prepare young people for the permanent relationship that is yet to come. That's God's intention. Our culture today is failing miserably at this and we're handing the devil a major victory because we don't have this figure out in our culture anymore. We need to be preparing young people for the permanent relationship in marriage and we need to do that well and that means mom and dad you it's a responsibility it's a it's a weighty responsibility to live your marriage in such a way that your children learn how to live married lives. And we don't do that very well. The next thing that we see in man's design here is a man cleaves to his wife. I don't know that I do that extremely well, but I know that's a responsibility, and I know men, our culture is not doing this very well. And we are tolerating all kinds of male behavior today towards spouses that is absolutely wrong and not of God. The man is to leave and he is to cleave to his wife. And notice the cleaving comes, or or the leaving comes before the cleaving happens. And the cleaving is never really accomplished unless the leaving has happened. (laughs) But he is to become one with her. There is to be a cleaving. There is to be a genuine interest in this person, this woman that God has given to her. And he is to love her as Christ loved the church, willing to lay down his life for her. Our culture screams loud and hard about submission. And how rotten it is that God and the Apostle Paul require submission of women. And there is nothing more complicated and harder than what God requires of men. To lay down your life for the spouse you are married to. It means taking up your cross, man. Adam and Eve had no parents from which to leave to form one flesh. (laughs) They didn't have to leave anything. It was just the two of them. 
marriage is the attempt to become one flesh. Like the original Adam and Eve. Without any other relationships taking primacy. That is to be the most important relationship. Above parent and children. Above every other kind of relationship. That relationship is to take primary importance. And then the man and the woman become one flesh. And I want to point out here that this happens in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, not in Genesis chapter 3. Physical intimacy, procreation, sex were all part of the paradise experience in the Garden of Eden before there was sin. They are part of what is right with the world. It is part of what God calls very good. When exercised according to his plan, disobedience to God always will diminish sexual pleasure rather than heightening it. God designed us to enjoy what he gave us in sex. And it says they were naked and unashamed. United. They have nothing to be ashamed of. There isn't any deficiencies in them. (laughs) United together. They represent the full expression of God. In a way that a man by himself cannot do, and in a way that a woman by herself cannot do, together they express the, the full expression, the, the image of God. And I'll, that's really our subject for next week, is how do we do that, and what, how does this all look, and all of that. But I want to say to us today that your meaning, your place in life, is best grasped in this. In being created, in the image, and in the likeness of God. And being renewed in the image and likeness of God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as you honor him, he will work in your life and make you more and more like him. And and Jesus is that perfect image of God. The perfect reflection of God. And as you live your life to know Jesus and to serve him, he will make you and shape you and make you more like God himself. That is the real dignity in life, becoming like Jesus. Secondly, Your meaning and your value comes in your duty to take responsibility for the things that God has given you responsibility for. Whatever it is that God is saying to you to do, whatever it is that God has given you responsibility, just do that to the best of your ability. That is your duty, and that's where your value and your meaning and and all of that, that worth comes from. Is when you're doing what God has called you to do. 
And thirdly, I want to say your, your meaning and value for those of you who are married, your value, your, your meaning needs to be based in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and not in Genesis chapter 3. Your delight, you need to delight in your spouse. And you need to learn to do that more and more. Day by day, delight in them. Practice the way Adam and Eve lived before the fall. Don't, don't try to make their, their lives after the fall your model for how you live. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Who wants to, you know, grow up with Cain and Abel? <laughs> who, who, wants to, who wants to live in those chapters right after Genesis chapter 3? None of us want that in our families. Go back and practice Genesis chapter 1 and go back and practice Genesis chapter 2 in your lives. That is where life and meaning and value comes from.